Hello and welcome to this 11th edition of Disconnect, the outdoor education podcast. I'm Joel Charriere and on today's episode I want to talk about risky play. This is a topic I've thought about for a long time and if you teach outside or if you take students on field trips with any amount of risk involved, I'm sure it's also crossed your mind. Even if you don't do these kind of riskier activities as part of your curriculum, you've probably also either experienced or dreaded the possibility of a student getting hurt during recess simply by falling off a play structure. I'm joined today by Dr. Mariana Brissoni, a child injury prevention researcher based out of Vancouver, British Columbia. Dr. Brissoni will discuss some of her research findings, but she's also going to address a big question that I had. What exactly is the role of teachers when it comes to risky play? First, however, a short glimpse into what is probably my biggest pet peeve in my own students' risk aversion. Risk-taking. We spend so much time as educators talking with students about risks. The risk of online predators, the risk of drinking and driving, the risk of street drugs, of putting things online that shouldn't be shared, the risk of crossing the road, the risk of playing near water, and these are just some of the most obvious ones that I can recall on a whim from recent years as a teacher. Risk is dangerous, and it's been shown unilaterally that risk-taking behaviors, often studied in teenagers, result in injury, both physical and emotional, and in the worst cases, death. Schools are the perfect place to talk about risk, and through the years I've seen some excellent presentations for students about doing drugs, drinking and driving, that were very powerful and touching. These big group presentations where they call all students down to the gym, make a, you know, they have a charismatic speaker, shares a personal story. Uh, they're, they're benefited by all of those little things that make things meaningful to kids. They're taken on this audio visual journey together as a group because, of course, shared experiences are so much more powerful. They get drawn into the story. Some kids always end up crying from the raw details shared. And it makes it even that much more powerful since the kids get to see each other react to trauma and it makes the whole thing so much more visceral and almost surreal i see it every time the kids leave the gym holding on to their friends and chatting almost like they had lost each other during the during the experience and they all fervently say that they will never do drugs or that they would never let their friends drink and drive Schools are the perfect place to do this because you wouldn't be able to get their attention certainly of all of these students outside of the school and tough luck thinking that you're going to get a kid to voluntarily show up for a session like this. They just wouldn't. Plus, you'd lack the authenticity of having that shared experience with friends, and that means the conversation that will carry on for days as a result of it, well, that wouldn't take place either. Schools have gotten really good at helping kids learn about risk. But not all risk is the same. Some of you might remember from an earlier episode when I shared a little bit about my past that before I became a, a teacher, I was a paramedic and I love healthcare. and there are times I miss it terribly. But the one thing I don't miss at all is picking up children. I don't miss car crashes. I don't miss that feeling in my gut whenever you get that call from dispatch about a rollover on the highway. Uh, more often than not, these were the results of risk-taking behaviors in the form of excessive speed, often combined with substance abuse. And let me be clear, for this episode, this is categorically not the type of risk that I'm talking about. 
As a parent, I don't want my children to simply avoid risk. In fact, I encourage risk-taking behavior in my children. Or maybe a better way of putting it is I encourage risk management with my children. And that's a philosophy that I carry into my teaching as much as possible because, as I've mentioned, my biggest pet peeve in my students is risk aversion. If you work in education, you've likely heard the terms helicopter parents, where the parents hover over top and swoop down as anything could possibly go wrong, or the dreaded snowplow parents who barrel down the path ahead of their kids and remove all obstacles. And I'm sure that there's lots of other types. And as Dr. Brissoni will mention in our interview, (laughs) there are different terms in different languages. And I find that fascinating. However, it's not something we explored. I'll have to email her about that. But whatever you call them, they all end up the same. And for me, that's fear of risk and all risk, good or bad. For example, in my grade nine and 10 science classes, we do a lot of labs and there are some short demo type activities. All are treated as though they are full lab experiments following scientific method of setting an objective, making a hypothesis, creating a method that is measurable, repeatable, collecting data, and of course, analyzing that data to come up with a conclusion. Everybody uses the scientific method all the time. And this is what I say to my students. You've been doing this since the day you were born. It's how I know my two-year-old son figures out his new toys. You know, he grabbed a square block at one point, jammed it in the star-shaped hole. It didn't go. His hypothesis was that this block would enter that hole. And when it didn't, well, he proceeds to smash it into a different hole and try it again and again until he realizes this is not the right block. Oh. Well, that's the scientific method. It's just the way we learn. And yet my students freeze at the thought of writing a hypothesis. They lift their hands and ask, what am I supposed to write? To which I reply, well, what do you think is going to happen? And it gets me every time. My two-year-old has the scientific method down pat. And so did these kids at one point. But somewhere along the way, they likely learned the fear of being wrong. The truth is, and I say this every single time, that it doesn't matter if your hypothesis is correct or not. It's true. Failure is an acceptable option. It always is an acceptable option in science. You just have to learn from it. So this risk-averse behavior started somewhere between their early, early formative years when they simply tried things, made a hypothesis, went ahead with it, and learned. But somewhere along the way, they lost it. Another example of this I saw when I taught some math, and to be clear, I'm not a math guy, which I actually think made me sometimes a half-decent math teacher because I understood the struggles that my, my students exhibited. But the truth is, They would fear so much being wrong that they would rather not write anything at all. And so I really think that risky play has a place in mitigating these risk-averse behaviors in our students. Think about your own teaching for a second and ask yourself, where are my students fearful of taking a misstep? I think that allowing them the opportunity to try things consequence-free would help mitigate those. I do this at times in my outdoor ed class. For example, if we're learning to tie bear bags, by this point we've scaffolded, we've learned knots, we've learned everything we need to know, and yet the students are scared of making a mistake. And so this is kind of my usual game plan, is I give them the materials that they need, 
I say, here's your, here's your stuff, Zach. Here's your rope. You know your knots, right? Yep. Okay. So I'm going to come back in five minutes and I want to see your bear bag hanging off this tree. And I just walk away. And they freeze. They just don't know what to do. But give them a couple minutes, walk away, turn back, and see that eventually they're kind of just trying things. And that is the beauty of it. I love when students just start trying things. And I know that you have definitely had this experience before in your teaching where you kind of just let the, <laughs> let the chips fall where they may. And eventually, it's that experimentation that leads to the learning. And I love that. Today's interview with Dr. Mariana Brissoni is one of my favorite I've recorded yet. I've been following Dr. Brissoni's research for a while, uh, and I, I just love it. it. It really speaks to me in terms of uh, a risky play promotion and making risky play accessible. And in fact, she, she really highlights the importance and the benefits of risky play. Dr. Mariana Brissoni is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics and in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. She is also a scientist with the BC Children's Hospital Research Institute and the BC Injury Research and Prevention Unit. She is a developmental psychologist. She is a Michael Smith Foundation for Health Research Scholar, board member of the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada, member of the Canadian Outdoor Play Collective Impact Strategic Planning Group, also a member of the International Play Safety Network, and a member of the National Advisory Committee on Recess. That is a long list of credentials. And Dr. Brissoni, in my opinion, is a true heavy hitter in this field. And so please, please, please listen to this interview. <laughs> if you have to listen to it more than once, she has so many great things to say that I really hope will help you wherever you're at to start incorporating risky play into your teaching philosophy. And if that simply means promoting it in your school community, then that's a great start. This interview was recorded on February 2nd, 2021. Happy listening, and I'll see you in about an hour. Can we begin by defining risky play? Yeah. Uh, so the definition that's in the academic literature comes from work by Ellen Sandsetter out of Norway. And so she defines risky play as thrilling and exciting play uh, where children are engaging with uncertainty and where there's a chance of physical injury. Um, and so if we break down the definition, each component is actually quite important. Okay. So thrilling and exciting gets at the point that the child is really you know, pushing themselves past their typical limit, mm -hmm. right? And so they, they want to see how far they can go, not so far that it just becomes downright scary, but far enough that they feel like there's a challenge. Um, and then there's the engagement with uncertainty. So mm -hmm. the point is that they're, they're doing experiments, you know, with, with the world, with their body, with themselves and what they're comfortable with. And they don't know how those experiments are going to turn out. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that's kind of the point. Uh, and so, you know, with adults, we, we don't like children engaging with uncertainty. We like to know that they're going to be safe and we can control the situation. So that can be quite a challenge for us. But uncertainty is really important to risky play. Yeah, And then the third component, the chance of physical injury. So they're moving their body, they're taking experiments. So anytime that you're doing that, there is a chance of physical injury. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I've tried to do is actually look at how likely 
there is a chance of physical injury and then the severity of that injury and so on, which we can talk about um, a bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't, do you want me to define the, the different well, kinds of risky play? Or? Well, maybe, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm interested in that. Uh, maybe for a functional example, for those who are maybe starting to wrap their head around what risky play is, can you give us a, a concrete example of what it is and perhaps a concrete example of what it is not? Sure. Yeah. So um, probably the easiest way is to talk about the different kinds of risky play, because I think then we can all relate to what those are. So that includes things like play at speed. So, for Mm -hmm. example, say, you know, a rollicking game of tag or, you know, riding your bike down a hill really fast. Play at heights, say like climbing trees or other structures. Uh, play with dangerous tools, like say when you're building a den or you know trying to construct something or whittling um, a stick. Mm-hmm. Um, play near dangerous elements, so that would be like when you're near, say, fire or cliffs or water. Um, play uh, where there's a chance of getting lost. So that would be like when kids are able to wander their neighborhoods on their own or, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of younger kids, um, they feel like the, they can be in a play space, but, the, you know, there's hidey holes where they feel yeah. that they could be off on their own. And, and, yeah, and so really the context is, can be quite small for this feeling of loss because lost for an adult is nowhere near the same as lost for a child. Exactly, which actually gets to a really important point that risky play is in the eye of the doer, right? Uh, So it's not about, say, me watching a child and saying, that's risky play, that is not risky play. It really has to come from the child themselves, and it's based on kind of their comfort level, uh, their abilities, you know, the, the kinds of things that they like to do, right? Um, so there's a few more kinds of risky play. (laughs) (laughs) Want me to mention those? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's rough and tumble uh, play, so um, uh, so kind of play fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's two more that have come out in more recent research out of Norway with younger kids. So um, there's play with impact, which is kind of like, uh, you know, sometimes you see kids, say, on tricycles, just slamming into walls over and over again, okay, kind of feeling, yeah. feeling that sense of boom, or, or taking a stick and slamming it against the, the ground and just the, the feeling of vibration up their arm. Yeah, yeah. I see this in my son who yeah. takes a, you know, a, a play hammer and just wants to hit everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's part of that, like, play with impact. Okay. Um, And then the last one is vicarious risky play. Um, So that can happen when a child is, say, watching another child who's engaged in risk and gets that kind of thrill Mm -hmm. from watching. Um, And it it can be a really um, useful stepping stone for children, you know, as they're learning to watch others and to, to kind of see and and vicariously experience that yeah. um, and then try it out themselves. I find that one really interesting. And, and I think I'll want to come back to that later as we explore other topics, because it, you know, if, if risky plays in the eye of the doer, um, vicarious play could be the level of comfort that they are ready for. That's, exactly. I definitely want to come back to that one exactly. a bit later. Yeah. Um, so, and, and actually, sorry, to that point. So then, for example, you can have, say, play at, play at heights, right? Mm-hmm. So you can have one child who's, you know, really comfortable going right to the top of a tree. And that's what's risky play for them. Uh, but another child's like, okay, first branch, that's, you know, that's good for me, right? Mm-hmm. So really, children have to calibrate for themselves yeah. what they're comfortable with. Yeah. So, and this is directly from one of your 
uh, research papers. It was published in Green Teacher. You defined the difference between risk and hazard. And I think it's important to distinguish when we want to explore what is not risky play to understand the, the definitions here. Do you mind going into a bit of detail about what might constitute a risk versus a hazard? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, it is a bit simplistic because, you know, um, there's not such a clear delineation, but mm -hmm. sometimes people find it easier to, to think about it that way. So uh, what we say is risk is, uh, say, a situation where a child should be able to make a decision for themselves about engaging in that activity. Right. So, you know, how high to climb or, you know, whether whether they want to build a den with which materials or those sorts of things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so adults can help. Um, scaffold that, right? And so um, taking direction from the child and providing support to the child's vision for that play. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a hazard might be something that a child either might not be able to manage um, or, um, or might not even recognize. Um, yeah. So for example, a, a broken slide, right? Or, um, you know, equipment that's, that's got some sort of damage to it um, or a fast moving river that might kind of be beyond the abilities of the child. Um, and so it can help to think about those things in terms of, you know, when you're doing a risk benefit assessment mm -hmm. of an activity and of a site um, to balance those and think about how can I maintain risk uh, so the kids actually have an environment where the likelihood of serious injury is, is minimized as much as reasonable mm -hmm. so that they actually have that freedom to be able to explore the risks as they need to. Yeah. So... For the layman, risky and hazard, they won't distinguish the two. So why use the term risky play? Mm, yeah, and we've we argued about this uh, for years and keep coming looping back. Yeah. So um, I actually uh, think that it's necessary to use different terms depending on context, right? Okay. So as an academic, I use the term risky play for a few reasons. One is that I'm writing in the academic literature and it has an academic definition, mm -hmm. you know, as established by Ellen Sandsetter's work. And so we need to be able to know when we're putting in the academic literature what we're talking about and clearly define our terms. Mm -hmm. And so if I start changing the terms, then I'm, I'm uh, you know, playing fast and loose with our <laughs> academic way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, the other reason that I use risky play is because I feel like uh, in my kind of privileged position where I am able to write kind of about society and societal approaches and hopefully influence and, and shift things for people um, and, and being in this privileged position where I'm not um, you know, I'm not taking direct care of kids. So I'm, I don't have to take on the mantle of that responsibility. Uh, so I can be, I can be a little bit looser with things. Yeah. My, my point is that I'm, I'm trying to push the societal conversation, right? Yeah. And so I want people to start distinguishing between risk and hazard and danger because um, there needs to be a recognition that risk is part of all of our lives of course. and that risk is actually something that children need developmentally speaking mm -hmm. and that they also need to be able to navigate you yeah. know for their own safety right 
So, so I've been having that conversation kind of at the societal level, hoping to open up space for practitioners and other people to be able to talk about, you know, risky play. Yeah. Understanding that they may have to talk about, you know, depending on the audience and because you don't want to shut people down and just like, you know, with some audiences, you say risk or risky play and they're like, no way, <laughs> you know, you, you've lost them, right? Yeah. So, and that's happened, right? Um, so, you know, it's kind of reading the audience and starting respectfully where they're at, right? If they're, yeah. if you have to start over here with outdoor play and, and you know, and slowly kind of maybe talk about adventure mm-hmm. or challenge, you know, that's okay. You mm-hmm. know, you start where you need to and then you gently kind of, you know, move together. Yeah. So when we first defined risky play, two things came to mind. First of all, most schools would say no categorically to all of these different categories of of play, of risky play. Um, And the other thing that came to mind is that knowing the audience of this show, which is namely outdoor educators, people who are interested in an outdoor learning, uh, camp counselors, perhaps early childhood educators, a lot of these people are probably thinking, but this is just how I played when I was a kid. And, you know, some of us are younger than, than others. And we it's still, it's not that far ago that that was just play. And yet all the research shows that there's been a trend over the past few decades to constantly reduce risk to the point of removing or prohibiting activities, as I mentioned, in the school setting, especially. What's been the driving force behind this pressure? Because everything is basically already safe is there evidence for making things yet safer Mm, yeah and this is kind of the crux of my research um i guess there's there's a few parts to your question so i'll take them hopefully i won't lose my train of thought as i go through but you can cut you can remind me if i miss things um so it's it's kind of a situation of a perfect storm of societal forces mm-hmm. that have influenced um, uh, society's perception of risk and perception of, of children and parenting and what children should be allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the key forces has been kind of increasing inequities in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we think about and trace back uh, this move towards what we call overprotective parenting, um, you might have also heard of it colloquially as helicopter parenting yeah. or snowplow parenting or, yeah. you know, we've, that kind of. You hear those yeah. terms a lot when you work in a school system and the, you know, the, yeah, there's there's different terms. They come up every couple of years. You hear a new one. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you look at different countries and different countries have their own version of the term. Yeah. Uh, which is really quite interesting. Um, but so in the academic literature, we tend to discuss it as intensive parenting. Um, okay. And so intensive parenting is really this expectation that parents put uh, kind of more resources towards raising their child, mm. right? And and this kind of shifted, started shifting in the late 80s. And so what that means is, for example, um, as parents see that inequities increase, that their child is, you know, it's not expected that they'll have a lifestyle as good or better than their parents, you know, that there's more competition for resources, that it's harder to get into university, that it's harder to get that good job with a well-paying and that his cost of living goes up and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the wages between the richest and the poorest, you know, that there's a big, bigger gap that they they need to work harder basically to make sure that their child is 
the one, you know, one of the lucky ones that yeah. will be okay. Yeah. Um, and so that means, you know, being more intensively involved. So, um, for example, um, planning their schedule around, you know, taking hockey or violin or, you know, learning other languages or, mm-hmm. um, and um, making sure that they're going to, you know, the right school and um, making sure that they're taking the kinds of courses that will lead to a good university and, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. So, um, so you add that and you add also um, an increasing proliferation of um, kind of parenting books and, and, and parenting materials telling, the, you know, the right way to parent, yeah. which wasn't really a thing you know a few decades ago um now there's like more of a held up standard around what good parenting means yeah Uh, and then you add social media into that mix Mm. where uh parents can like you know display their parenting and or a very curated selection of their parenting yes absolutely and hold each other to account and pass judgment on each other's parenting Mm -hmm. um that creates kind of a pressure cooker of of like expectation for parents yeah um and then on top of all of that so we've put that aside for a moment you have also the ubiquitous availability of media on smartphones, for example, that will tell you um, about all of the horrible things that are happening in the world, mm-hmm. uh, kidnappings and horrific, awful things. And so, and because we get that constantly, there's this perception that the risks are everywhere, that it's a really scary place. It's less safe than it used to be. Yeah. Kids, you know, there's a boogeyman around every corner waiting to kidnap your child um, and, and so on. But is it backed up by... Empirical data? Do we have statistics on this? We do. And it's it's not. Um, But before I get to the data, I'll just tell you the other forces that are kind of coming into play because you also have increasing urbanization of society, right? So you have um, more and more people moving into cities, greater density of population, more um, car-centric cities. And so you have uh, design of cities that's not as conducive to people just being out on the street, you know, meeting Mm. and talking to their neighbors, right? And so that social cohesion has gone down. They're less likely to know their neighbors. So they're less likely to feel like, ah, there's, there's, you know, if my son or daughter goes out, I know that someone will look after them, right? Mm -hmm. So all all of that together. so with respect to the statistics, you know, and the fears, you know, we know that that uh, people, parents and adults, any of us are actually really bad at appropriately calculating risks. Mm, um, yeah. So we think, for example, that cars are... Uh, are safe or at least some a risk that we're willing to take and we are less worried about getting into a car let's say than we are about getting into an airplane and yet if you if you look at the statistics um so injuries are the leading cause of death for kids yeah and number one is being a passenger in a car right number one by far right but we don't think twice um, about putting our kid in the car well, and the irony is that we actually put them in cars thinking we're keeping them safe, right? Like we're not, right. you know, walking or biking or, you know, and we're ferrying them in cars from one activity to the other because we want to enrich them and keep them safe. Yeah. And yet we are putting them at risk of the greatest likelihood of anything to kill them, right? Mm. So, it, so there's a lot of reframing necessary here to get parents to see 
that risky play is not the culprit. Exactly. And then with respect to like stranger danger, which is like this really big looming fear for parents, understandably, Mm -hmm. because it's like the most awful thing you can think of to happen to your child. (laughs) Um, But frankly, but if you if you look at the statistics in Canada, the last time these were collected, because they're so rare in terms of I'm talking about kidnapping by strangers, which is what parents fear. Um, The last time we have statistics for there, there was a rate of one in 14 million which hmm. is um, the same as winning Lotto 649. Yeah. Or you can also think of it as leaving your child outside for 200,000 years, <laughs> you know, to be able to log the time, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that they'll get kidnapped, right? Yeah. So, so it's like, it's the fear looms so large and yet the likelihood is like tiny, yeah. tiny. Yeah, so, so the statistics are saying that Number one cause of child death is injury, however, not caused by play. Nope. So how, how is this happening? How are we in this situation where just it's, I, I feel because I, I, I have young children and there's lots of people who listen who will have children, different ages. And I feel like there's this vicious cycle that's really hard to snap out of because as you mentioned, those pressures from social media, from books, from however else, they keep coming back. And I also understand that there's a social, or sorry, a cultural context here, um, meaning that different countries have different levels of comfort. Where does Canada fit in this kind of model of how, how comfortable we are with risky play? Mm. Uh, well, uh, so I would say that the Western nations, many of them are quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but even there, you can, you can kind of look at and see differences. I would say Canada is one of the least tolerant of oh. risky play. Wow. Yeah. Um, if there are things that influence a country's tolerance culture, but also, for example, the insurance system, yeah. um, so, so in, in the case of, say, Scandinavia, there's this culture of what they call frutislava, which is like outdoor life. Yeah. You know, so there's this expectation, actually, that, you know, kids are outside. And, you know, when you sign them up for childcare, um, you ha- they, they actually have a nap outside. You mm-hmm. know, they spend a whole bunch of time outside. Um, and so there's a much more acceptance about them getting dirty and running around all day and, you know, and in those cases, you know, parents who pick up their kids after childcare, if their kids are too tidy, it's like, didn't you do anything today? <laughs> yeah. You know? In contrast to here where it's like, oh, you're so dirty, right? Um, so, and then when you get a country like New Zealand, they have no fault insurance there. And so, in fact, that has had an impact on, you know, schools and what they're comfortable doing and that sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas Australia doesn't. Um, and so even two countries so close together are quite different. In yeah. Terms of so, well, tolerance. speaking of two countries close together, I have a lot of listeners south of the border in the United States. And especially as Canadians, we have this idea that uh, Americans are very litigious, right? That there's this constant Mm -hmm. fear of litigation. And although a lot of Canadian teachers still feel that fear of litigation, um, how how would that be south of the border? Are they as litigious as as we think they are? Well, um, there was some research from the um, from Harvard actually coming up out a few years ago that found that our perceptions of the litigious nature of the U.S. is mis 
misguided and misplaced, hmm. that uh, they're not as litigious as we might think. Yeah. Um, having said that, there are differences between our litigation systems. So, for example, in Canada, we have clear caps on, you know, you know how much an award can be, which mm-hmm. is, you know, not not huge actually. Um, But it's hard to get a sense in Canada of just how likely uh, it is to get, you know, uh, to run into problems or get sued for these kinds of things because um, so few cases actually end up in the court system where they would be in the public, public realm that we don't, we, we don't know anything about those that go to the insurance company and are just dealt with there or either paid out or dismissed or whatever. None of that makes it into the public realm. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's hard to say. Having said that, I have, we have uh, talked extensively with different insurance companies and agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, one insurance company uh, funded our uh, work to develop a risk benefit assessment framework and to promote risky play and, and, and support creating insurance products for, say, uh, forest school practitioners or, mm-hmm. or educators who want to take their kids out who see insurance as a barrier. Um, so I suspect it's a much bigger barrier uh, than it actually is. Right? Yeah. So so on that note then, and, and I'll, I'll spring a question on here that I, I didn't kind of give you a heads up on before. It seems like insurance plays a really big part in perhaps the comfort level of care providers or of teachers uh, in what they're willing to do with, with their, their students. Is that a conversation that a teacher should be having with their administration, seeing what what is the insurance coverage? How do we make sure that our insurance coverage is appropriate for these activities? Um, is that something that's even, um, I guess, up for debate in the public school system in Canada? It's a good question, right? So, I mean, if I look at the very kind of high level, what I what we would like to suggest attorney generals do is move towards a no-fault insurance policy, mm-hmm. right? Much like the New Zealand model, so that we get rid of this issue altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but barring that, um, there are insurance companies that provide insurance to schools uh, specifically. And um, so there needs to be a bit more actually, like frankly, training on both ends. So training of the insurance companies and the insurance brokers and training for the superintendents, you know, the the senior management of the school system so that they understand not only, you know, the importance of risky play, the likelihood of actually likelihood of injury, Mm -hmm. um, the risk benefit assessment uh, frameworks for supporting this kind of play that that does so in a very evidence-based manner. Um, And so that there is more of a recognition around, you know, how big a problem is this um, so that we can better support it. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, because insurance is already available in schools, but typically it's just marketed for kind of sports injuries. And I can't help but think as we have this conversation that there are likely countless amounts of sports injuries for each play-based injury. Yes, in fact, there is. Uh, There's so much stats I can give you, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a systematic review done um, uh, a few years ago. So a systematic review basically looking across all of the literature available uh, for 6 to 12-year-olds for physical activity-related injuries. And what they were looking at was actually exposure time. Because that's something mm-hmm. we don't often have. So what that means is 
for the amount of time spent doing something, how likely is it that you'll have a medically treated injury, right? So they looked across the literature and they compared sports, um, active commuting, so like say biking or walking to school, and play. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that play had the highest number of injuries, right? Okay. But when you consider the amount of time spent doing it, sports was much higher. It was number one. Yeah. And play, um, the rate that they had was 0.15 to 0.17 medically treated injuries per 1,000 hours of play time. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Because um, it's a bit of a kind of odd statistic. Essentially, yeah. what it means is that a child would have to play three hours a day for 10 years to log the time to get one medically treated injury and that injury is likely to be minor, right? So a minor um, bruise or sprain or strain or, you know, because the definition of medically treated injury also included, say, going to the nurse's office for an ice pack as well as going to the emergency department or or some some other type of medical follow-up. So still minor. Interesting. Very so, minor. So yeah. ultimately, I mean, we, we can talk all day about what it is, but what I really want to get to is why is it so important? Mm. Yeah. So it's really important for so many reasons. And I think that um, what might make the most sense to your listeners, actually, you know, we talked at the beginning about how it, it just was called play before. Mm-hmm. And now we have to have this term for it of risky play. Um, and, you know, why is that? Well, part of it is because um, academics like me uh, notice that it's it's diminishing and we have to come up with a term for it so we can measure it and mm-hmm. see, you know, the effect of it. Um, so if you think back, you know, and if your listeners think back to their favorite childhood play memory, mm-hmm. just take themselves back there. And we've asked this of so many different people. We've done it in formal research as well as something that I do in in almost all of my presentations. I I really ask people to take themselves back there. And then I take a little poll around where were you in your head when you took yourself back to your favorite childhood play memory. Mm -hmm. And what we find is the vast majority of people are outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, They're typically unsupervised. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're typically uh, taking risks, and and they're in environments that aren't like uh, say a formal playground. They're in like forests or ditches or ravines or the alley behind their house or the local parking lot or you know places like that, right? And so if you think back to why that memory was so important to you, then it actually becomes very intuitive in terms of why why that would be such an important thing to do. So people often talk about kind of a sense of, of joy and mm-hmm. fun and excitement. Um, and so, uh, and the sense of being outside is like a constantly changing place where there was always a place to find adventure and meeting up with friends and, and making up rules as you went along. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, finding new and interesting places, and uh, and figuring out the solution to your own problems, and and um, having you know close calls or scrapes, and figuring out for yourself how to manage those. So you know, think about that. It's like socio-emotional development. It's executive functioning skills. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of kind of making a plan and carrying out that plan. 
Um, it's um, a numeracy and literacy. It's um, a whole like physical literacy. It's uh, physical activity. Uh, it, you know, it, you can just kind of go on and on and uh, the mental health benefits of the, mm -hmm. the confidence you get from trying something out and being able to figure it out for yourself and, uh, and, and playing with different kinds of people. And so like, it really is just uh, amazing actually, because the digger, the deeper we dig with the research, the more we find important relationships and that this kind of, kind of outdoor play with risk-taking it just there aren't substitutes for it yeah you can't make up for it right so it really is something that every kid needs yeah so to play devil's advocate here because i know that if i approach my administration tomorrow and i say i want to do this i will meet a lot of resistance so you know parents are going to say this administrators are going to say this um and this is in the research Lack of supervision plays a key role in childhood injuries, and yet we talk about unsupervised play. And also that supervision is a very strong predictor in reduction of injuries. So there's no denying that supervision, or the lack thereof, leads to injuries, and that this can impact the positive effect that we want from risky play. This is the kind of stuff that my administrators are going to tell me. They might tell me that it's coming from parents, but truthfully, I know it's coming from them. <laughs> so how should I respond to this? What would you tell a teacher who wants to start kind of fostering this in their school community? To a, How would you tell them to approach this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, a few, a few different things. So first of all, like you said, you know, the these decisions are coming from the administrators often themselves, right? And, and even if it's coming from parents, the decisions are being made from a place of anxiety. So we call it anxiety-based caregiving, right? Mm -hmm. So it's adults trying to manage their own fears and anxieties um, rather than considering what the needs of the kids are in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in making those decisions. And anxiety is a very powerful motivator, right? So one of the things that you need to do is really like like I mentioned earlier, you need to understand where people are and meet them where they're at. Mm -hmm. You can't push them here, you know, if you're back here, if they're back here. So um, a lot of what we do and and we have our online tool outsideplay.ca is really about um, starting where people are at and gently moving them along. And we know that it's going to be uh, it's not a quick process necessarily, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, uh, I have a few, a few different thoughts and hopefully I'll get them out coherently. <laughs> um, but, you know, first is really, you know, we talked about taking people back to their favorite childhood play memory, and yeah. that can be a very powerful tool, right? Because it connects people with, uh, what it's like to be a child. It reminds them what that's like. And it also reminds them about how, why that play is so valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be a good way to kind of start a conversation. Now, the other thing that we talk, so there's been a big shift in, in the way we're approaching injury prevention as a result of a greater understanding of the importance of this kind of play. So our approach, you know, even 10 years ago or even more recently, and still the case in some places, is we want to keep kids as safe as possible. Yeah. You know, and that means, you know, no injuries or minimal injuries. What we shifted to is an approach that has kids as safe as necessary, 
right? Yeah. So what you're really promoting is a as a risk benefit assessment approach. You know, like we talked about earlier, right? So that you still keep the risks and and give kids the opportunity to make those decisions while managing the hazards that could result in serious injury, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the next important thing is what is a serious injury? Mm-hmm. So it's not about preventing, you know, every bruise or scrape or whatever. These are a natural part of growing up. They're a natural part of activity. And they're frankly an important part of kids learning the limits of their body and how their bodies work. You know, there, there's no substitute for the risk management skills that kids get from these experiences. You can't learn them by being told. Them. Yeah. Um, you really have to experience for yourself how to do those things and how your body interacts with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as, even as an injury prevention initiative, giving kids the opportunity for risk in environments that are frankly very safe, like yeah. school playgrounds, um, is really important to develop their risk management skills so that they can then keep themselves safe in frankly much more dangerous situations like cars you know crossing a road or or those kinds of things right um and so if we don't provide kids with these experiences we're hampering their risk management skills and we're actually increasing the possibility of serious injury yeah so yeah so I mean, you've mentioned a couple times a risk benefit assessment. I have found one tool online, which I, I, I think I found it because it was mentioned in one of the articles that I'd read preparing for this interview. Uh, it was from the UK and mm-hmm. there's kind of a template for a risk benefit assessment there. However, I, I wasn't overly thrilled with it in that it, it seemed very vague still. And I think that if I filled it out and I gave it to my administrators, they would say, well, what is this? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is a great segue into outsideplay.ca, which is actually the result of one of your projects called Go Play Outside, which was developed as a response to an urgent need, perceived urgent need at least, to reframe risky play and to develop tools aimed at parents and early childhood educators. But this took place in Vancouver. Um, It was a smaller project. And in order to reach a broader audience, uh, a website was launched, outsideplay.ca, which I will put in the uh, episode notes. So there's a risk of, or sorry, there's a suite of risk reframing tools that can be found on there. Can you give us maybe a glimpse of what else we can expect to find on the website? Sure. Um, and, and risk reframing might not make sense to your, to your uh, listeners. So, so maybe I should explain that a little bit. Um, sure. So, you know, it's really about um, trying to manage that anxiety-based caregiving that I was uh, talking about, right? Okay. So that there's a, there's a kind of a management of the fear so that parents and educators can open up their mind to think about other possibilities around kids' outdoor play. Um, and so the the tool itself was developed based on health behavior change techniques. Mm-hmm. You know, the same kind of techniques that that we use to um, uh, help people stop smoking or change their diet or or those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, there was a very um, in depth uh, research that was conducted to develop it, and then we did 
randomized control trials. Uh, on the parent tool, it's complete and, and done. We're currently doing a randomized control trial on the educator tool, testing that on out. Mm -hmm. um, so we're very confident that they work. Yeah. Um, so, and on, uh, we have a resource page. And so one of the, so you mentioned the risk benefit assessment framework. Um, one of the things that you, that we actually developed uh, was one for Canada. Okay. Um, and so clearly we're not, we haven't done a good enough job in getting it out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it lives in a couple of different places. At least you can access it. You can access it via outsideplay.ca in the resource page. Um, and there's also uh, at outdoorplaycanada.ca is, is an access point. Um, but it actually was developed by the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so you can find it. Um, it's a bit more buried on their website. but um, the uh, so the idea was we we did take the UK risk benefit assessment tool, but we Canadianized it, mm -hmm. you know, to the Canadian legislative context, um, and we had um, um, a steering committee that included uh, lawyers, uh, insurance agents, playground safety inspectors, educators, municipal risk managers, um, and so on, a very wide variety of, of people uh, in with different hats having a look at the risk benefit assessment and making sure that uh, it made sense, you know, from their perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so I can send you the link uh, to it after. Yeah. And, uh, and um, then for those who are listening, I will post it in the episode notes so you can link directly to it and not dig around and, and if, in case you don't find it, right? The, the goal is yeah, to get yeah. this tool in people's hands. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So they can find it on our website, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, putting in a separate link. Um, so the idea behind that tool is that um, it includes um, a series of kind of, um, uh, say, checklists, for example, that you could use. So, uh, for example, risk-benefit assessment for the site. So uh, let's say like you're at a school, you want to do one for the playground site. Or if you're taking your kids on a um, field trip, you'd want to go and, you know, where you're taking them, you would want to do one for there. Mm -hmm. And you'd probably want to repeat that. Not every day, you don't need to, but let's say there's a change in conditions like different kind of seasons or, you know, it's been a while since you've done it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, there's also uh, tools on there for different activities, right? Let's say you're planning a specific um, activity for your kids, then you can think about that activity in the context of one of the tools. But then there's also the dynamic risk benefit assessment, right? So mm -hmm. kids are going to be playing, they're going to be coming up with their you know, own way of doing things, mm -hmm. things that I can guarantee you will not have thought of. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's part of the beauty of it. Um, so, uh, so there's kind of help and guidance around how do you manage some of that. Um, and it's, it's a learning process. It's not like you'll read it and pick it up and you'll, you know, it's clear. And, and it's, it's something that you have to play with a bit and try out. Um, mm -hmm. And also the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada does offer training on using the tool. Mm -hmm. um, and in our outsideplay.ca, the educators uh, tool that we have, there's, um, there's some um, choose your own adventure kind of videos yeah. which show uh, how risk benefit assessment might work in, in action. Right? Yeah, and that so, would be the, the personal journey part. That's too. right. Yeah, yeah. The personal journey for the educators. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and this is, this is a tool not only aimed at teachers, this is something that they could share with their wider school community because there's a lot of resources on there for parents also. 
Totally, yeah. And there's actually two different tools on there. So you can click on the parent tool and go off to the parent tool, or you can click on the educator tool and go off to the educator tool. Yeah. yeah. So kind of to wrap up some of these ideas, ultimately, everybody wants to know, at least those who are listening, where do teachers fit in? What is our role? I mean, lots of the research, as we've discussed, is kind of aimed at parents. However, academics, perhaps teachers who are interested in the topic and those who are listening today are getting a little bit of a immersion in, in the topic. Um, but ultimately parents are the ones who need to hear this because we talk about anxiety-based parenting. We talk about, um, overprotective parenting. How can a teacher perhaps start fostering change within their wider school community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's not just parents, it's teachers as well. Right. So, uh, we've done quite a bit of research, uh, mostly in early childhood education centers, but also in schools and finding, um, so the challenge with, uh, schools and and childcare centers is that you have an ecosystem that needs to be dealt with. Right. Mm -hmm. So you not only have the educator themselves and their, say, fears or biases or concerns or, you know, I don't like going outside, I, I'm, I'm worried that the kids will get out of control, I don't have the right gear, it's raining out, you know, those sorts of things at the individual level. Mm-hmm. But then there's also, okay, well, will my colleagues think that I'm, a, I'm being negligent if I don't, you know, uh, take every care I can of the kids and make sure that they're safe at all times. Um, will, in, in the case of childcare, will the director of the center, in the case of schools, will the principal think that I'm negligent? Do they have my back if something yeah. goes wrong? You know, what will the parents think when they show up to pick up their kid and their kid has a scrape? You know, how will I deal with that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, what if they sue me? You know, can yeah. I... It, it, Will will our childcare lose their license, or will we lose our insurance, or you know? So there's there's really kind of layers of an onion that need to be dealt with and peeled away, and um, and so it's quite challenging, but it's not impossible, and it's been done. And so what we try and provide is is tools to help with those different levels. Um, and now actually we have a research study that was just funded where we're going to be working in childcare centers to help them peel all of those levels at the same time yeah. um, so that we can support. But it really, so it needs, it relates to individual attitudes of the educators, mm-hmm. of the teachers, of the principals, of the superintendents, et cetera. So uh, the risk reframing tools could be part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also have infographics that are available on our website, you know, for easy distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have, you know, the perceived challenges around insurance, right? So uh, as I said, we, we've worked with insurance agencies that have uh, created products specifically to support this kind of thing. Um, but schools have a lot of leverage, right? So they yeah. can also, it can be a two-way process, right? They can also push back and, and challenge some of this and, and demand the kinds of products they need yeah. to support this, right? Um, and And so there's, Really, you need kind of the support at several different levels, but it's it's been done. And in fact, the UK uh, and the, the programs also come to Canada. It's called the OPAL program, mm-hmm. Outdoor Play and Learning. And they work with schools to uh, provide kind of a guided mentorship model um, to uh, the idea there is to bring loose parts into the play space. Mm-hmm. But you 
you can't just bring loose parts in. You have to have the the um, the training for the supervision of those kids in the playground that's appropriate, like more of a playwork kind of model rather than a policing model. Yeah. Um, and you have to have you know the attitude of the whole school that supports this uh, champions within the school to to make sure that they can drive it forward. Mm-hmm. And so they have a really really effective, really beautiful model that works with the school community Mm -hmm. to push it forward. Um, So there's a lot of resources out there. Mm -hmm. I think it's just the matter of teachers finding them. Yeah. Uh, And and I have a PhD student who's also a teacher in one of the school boards here who's, uh, she's an educator who teaches outside. Yeah, Megan um, Zenny. Megan Zenny. I've actually interviewed her for a previous episode and I found out after the fact that she was one of your PhD students. Yeah. And so she, her website, meganzenny.com, yeah. has a ton of resources and she provides professional development. And it's, it's really like, that's why we created Outdoor Play Canada, actually, because there's so many resources out there mm-hmm. and people are just like, where do I find them? And so we wanted one place where an educator could go or a, a parent or frankly, anybody to find what they needed around this. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that, um, I found really interesting was that it, I forget which paper it was in, but I, I think it was you who wrote it saying that oftentimes teachers are maybe more scared than is warranted and that their fears of what parents may or may not be okay with are actually kind of heightened. Um, so it sounds like you just need to talk to the parents and you need to talk yeah. to your admin. Yeah. Um, and and the conversation yeah, well, and it's actually quite useful for the parents and, and the teachers to be in a session together, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, Anita Bundy's done some great work on this and basically finding that when parents, like when you talk to them both and the teachers hear the parents saying like, oh, you know, I really support this and it's important to me, then the teachers feel more comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, that the parents aren't going to freak out, Right. Um, But yeah, like it's good to do the whole school community, but also that these conversations have to be ongoing, right? It can't just be once. It has to be part of the fabric of the school. You know, maybe it's a standing item on the staff meetings so that, you know, emerging challenges or or interesting things that happen can be shared amongst the teachers so the teachers can act as mentors for each other and Mm -hmm. kind of work through issues together. And the parents understand that the school values this for these reasons and mm-hmm. that they also see how their children are benefiting from these experiences mm-hmm. so that there will be injuries. So that when an injury happens, it's like, ah, yeah. as you know, these things happen. We understand. And boy, does my son or daughter get so much out of these experiences. Right. Yeah, and everybody who works in a school or who belongs to a school community knows that the loudest voice in the room is that of a parent's. And so to kind of gain that clout with your administration, I guess, if you, this is something you're passionate about, you want to get started, if you can get parents backing you, I think it would go a long way, would not? Yeah, yeah, um, like the parent advisory committees, for example. Yeah, yeah that's right. So to yeah. bring it right back to the here and now, uh, how has the pandemic affected access to risky outdoor play? Great question. Um, So we actually did a survey on this uh, back in April, kind of in the thick of the lockdown, and we actually just finished the follow-up survey. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
what we found was that essentially kids' access to outdoor play went way down during the lockdown. Um, Part of that, of course, related to not being able to go to schools. A lot of schools were closed across the country. Um, But also, and the the effect was worse for kids in apartment buildings, you know, because getting out, you know, out into outdoor play areas. Because I know at least in in my city where I am, they shut down all city city parks off limits. So anybody who doesn't have a yard, well, you're kind of hooped. Out of luck. Yeah, exactly. So it was rather awful, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. Physical activity went way down. Sedentary behavior went way up. Mm-hmm. Screen time went way up, you know. So, uh, and we are, the early results are indicating it's still an issue, right? Yeah. Um, so, but uh, I guess that's the kind of the negative side of things. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to also focus on the positives in that never before have we had so many people focused on access to the outdoors and feeling like being outside is such an important part of their mental health right and and wanting to take their kids outside um and so it's become like a just a regular part of conversations about you know getting access to the outdoors um and the places that i used to go the hikes i used to do that where we would hardly see anybody are now you know jam-packed with people (laughs) uh which has its positives and negatives but um uh the positive being that more and more people are getting exposed you know to how how important this is right so in many ways i think that we're in an ideal place to really push this conversation forward right now so there is hope I, I choose to be hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so am I. And I, that's, I think that's a mutual feeling with everybody who's listening to this is that there's, there's this respect for nature and we see that this pandemic, despite all of the challenges, has brought upon tons of opportunities for change. And the most regrettable thing would be if, his, if nothing changed as a result of it. Totally. Well, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Dr. Brissoni. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Joel. So again, lots and lots of good things to go over there. I've had to listen to it a a number of times to try to extract more information, but a conversation that kept happening after I stopped recording was about uh, how do we know what our insurance coverage is as teachers, which I think is a very, very important topic. And so that led me to discuss with my administrators and then afterwards with my school division. And I'm still in the process of of trying to get the information that I have. I think this is something that we all take for granted. Uh, And yet that the fear of not knowing what would happen or what could happen and how we're covered actually prevents us from doing things. Knowledge is power in this situation. And so I, I encourage you all to talk to your administrators, talk to your school division and ask them about the specifics of what your insurance plan is. I'm still working on this, uh, but uh, it, it is kind of giving me this, this sense of hopefulness as I kind of dig further and further down and see just how many people along the way aren't quite sure of how we're insured. Uh, it, it, to me, that, that actually makes me hopeful because it means that we're, we're kind of bringing these things to light. Um, so I encourage you to have those discussions also, because if you feel that uh, your, your administrators will have your back, 
because they have a better understanding of what your insurance coverage is. Uh, I, I think that goes to kind of what Dr. Brassoni was saying about this needs to be a reoccurring topic of discussion. It needs to be the kind of thing that, you know, I my, my administrator has my back because they understand this and kids do get hurt. However, the prevalence of those injuries in play situations is is uh, is low and uh, the the severity of these injuries is even lower or or lesser so you know talk have the talk talk to your administrator talk to whoever you need to talk to to get this information uh, because I think oftentimes it's hard for us to get that info, uh, not because necessarily people don't want to give it to us, but likely they don't actually understand it fully either. So please ask those questions. Um, and hopefully that makes you feel more empowered to try some of these riskier things or to be a champion of risky play in your school community. Thank you so much for being with me today. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed recording it and, and having that discussion with Dr. Brissoni. And if you have any questions about it, please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you. I can be reached by email at disconnectpodcast at protonmail.com. Or you can also reach to me uh, on Twitter. And my handle is at OutdoorEdCast. I love hearing from you, whether it's a tweet or a long email about a, you know, a long thought question you've had. I, I'm, I'd love to be of any help I can be. Now, that being said, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this, please tell a friend about it. Uh, it does help me kind of stay motivated more than anything else. I do not profit from this at all. This is 100% a passion project of mine. Um, so please, if you do tell friends about it, that every time I see a couple extra subscribers, it kind of just helps me keep me motivated to keep going with this. On the next episode of the podcast, I will be talking with David Sobel, a real thought leader in the area of outdoor and place-based education. So I'm very much looking forward to that one. Stick around till then. See you next time.